Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 75th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. Naughties, baby. (laughs) We're in our own lifetime again. Very exciting. I was thinking about that this year, or for this year. I do think the fact that we were 12, 13 is going to influence, you know, my feelings about these films. Some of them are kind of formative. Yeah, fair enough. But, yeah. Was it a good year? Was it good to be 13 in 2002? I mean, I don't know that it was any worse than being 13 in any other year, but was it a good year? No. We will run through the events of the year, and it was a pretty objectively bad year. Okay, so up uh, in the States, George W. Bush is president. We're post-9-11. Yep. This year we get the Axis of Evil speech. (laughs) Oh, what a speech. Yep. And we get some just great legislation coming out of this administration. No Child Left Behind, which, of course, transformed American education. And now everyone's doing great. And no child has ever been left behind again. Yeah. Wow. And then also the Homeland Security Act was passed this year. So true. Yikes. Love a police state. Ay, ay, ay. But at least there was some good news. Yes. This is the year that George W. Bush famously choked on a pretzel so that was a good time for us all that's pretty funny yeah pretty one of the funnier things that's happened to a president certainly you know right up there with his dad throwing up on the prime minister of japan they've both had great moments (laughs) (laughs) yeah but also in you know american politics slash george bush news the war in afghanistan is ongoing Mm -hmm. so that fucking sucks yep there was also other stuff happening in the Middle East that you yep. just don't really want to talk about right now. And but... I don't think you really want to hear about it right now, but <sighs> it was going on. There was an Olympics this year in Salt Lake City. We always love an Olympics, although America did not win the most medals this year. So bummer for us. I mean, it's sad when you're hosting, but it's also just sad. I, I'm sad every time we don't win the most medals. <laughs> I think this might be one of the more classically American things about us. Is that when there's an Olympics, we're like, we expect to win the most medals, obviously. The most golds, most medals. Devastated if it doesn't happen. Um, in other, you know, world sporting event news, we also had a World Cup this year hosted mm-hmm. in Korea and Japan. Fun cool. Times. And I expect we didn't do well in it. No, but, you know, <laughs> not as devastated by that, no, to be that's expected. I expected, yeah. This was a year of several important international agreements. The International Criminal Court began this year, and the African Union officially began. I think they had started signing stuff like two years before. And the Eurozone begins this year, so get that Euro going, European Union. Yeah, cool. Also this year, we've got a respiratory illness going around. This is the beginning of the SARS epidemic, which yep. was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. People were worried it would be bad in America, and it was not, but it was definitely bad elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And then, in probably the most important news of the year, this was the first season of American Idol, and it brought us wow. Kelly Clarkson. Yay. <laughs> okay, what's happening at the box office? 
Well, at the box office, our top five are The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Spider-Man, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, and Men in Black 2. And then in news that will become important later in this podcast, number nine on the list was My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and number 11 was Catch Me If You Can. Let's start talking about these movies then. What won this year? Chicago. The musical was back, baby. The movie musical has returned. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a new precedent. Musicals forever. Oh, yeah. Now it's going to be all movie mu- musicals all the time. So the general consensus at the time, I think people were not shocked the Chicago won. We found Roger Ebert saying, Chicago's definitely going to win. The movie musical is back. I don't think it's the best movie of the year, but it's certainly the one that will win. And he was right. Yeah, it did. What's the historical consensus now? This is not like a hated winner. I don't, no. You don't see people trashing it. But we did find some, you know, interviews, some lists where people said maybe something else should have won. We saw several votes for The Pianist, which we, of course, will talk about, one of the nominees. So I think it's a little mixed in terms of what mm-hmm. people think should have won. But this is not one of our more hated winners by any means. Correct. So because we are doing... 10 movies this year and there were only five nominees we clearly have considered some other things that perhaps should have been nominated so let us list the movies that we have added for various you know cultural impact sort of reasons yeah so we added this year spirited away which we will talk about but it won best animated feature this year spielberg catch me if you can he had two this year we picked one Mm mm-hmm my Big Fat Greek Wedding, which if you were alive in 2002, you will remember was a phenomenon. Oh, yeah. And then two foreign language films, both nominated in original screenplay, Itu Mama Tambien and Talk to Her. Both also shockingly not nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. That was weird, but <laughs> hey. Now, as we were making this episode, we came across a lot of movies which we considered adding into our plus five bracket. At one point, we were thinking of doing a full 16 film true bracket. There were Mm -hmm. a lot of well-regarded movies this year. So we have missed some. Yes. Tell us about it on Instagram. We might have missed your favorite movie from this year. Do let us know if that's the case. But I I argued for the 16 movie bracket, but I I backed down eventually. (laughs) So we have done our usual 10 film bracket. We have gone to the Rotten Tomato scores for everything. We have seeded them one through 10. And we will go through these matchups, 10 v. 1, etc. Decide what we think should have won each of those matchups. And then in this episode, we will discuss the loser. And in the next episode, we will discuss the winner. So our number one seed this year is Spirited Away, an animated film about a young girl who must rescue her parents after they're transformed into pigs. Stars, at least in the English dub, Devay Chase, Jason Marsden, and Suzanne Plachette. It's directed by Hayao Miyazaki and written by Hayao Miyazaki. It's nominated for one, and it won one Best Animated Feature. This face is off against our number 10 seed, Gangs of New York, an epic about rival gangs in Civil War era New York City. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Cameron Diaz. It was directed by Martin Scorsese. Written by Jay Cox, Stephen Zalian, and Kenneth Lonergan. It was nominated for 10, and it won zero. Yeah, ouch. On the count of three, we will declare a winner. One. One. Two. two three. three. Spirited, spirited away. away. Okay. 
for our next matchup. It is our two seed, Catch Me If You Can, a biopic of a con man and the FBI agent who tries to catch him. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Jeff Nathanson. It was nominated for two and it won zero. That's up against our number nine seed, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, a rom-com about a Greek woman who marries a non-Greek man. It stars Nia Verdalos and John Corbett. It was directed by Joel Zwick, written by Nia Verdalos. Nominated for one, it won zero. Ouch. Not as bad what? as being nominated for 10 and winning no. zero. <laughs> Nothing is as bad as that. That's embarrassing. One. One. Two. two three. Catch, catch me, me if, if you, you can. can. Okay. All right. That brings us to our number three seed, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. This is the second part of Peter Jackson's adaptation of J.R.L. Tolkien's fantasy epic. Stars Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Viggo Mortensen, and Ian McKellen. It's directed by Peter Jackson, written by Fran Walsh, Philip Aboyans, Stephen Sinclair, and Peter Jackson. It's nominated for six, and it won two, Best Sound Editing and Best Visual Effects. And our number eight seed is The Hours, a hyperlink period semi-fic biographical psychological drama, according to Wikipedia, that is a loose adaptation of Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. It stars Meryl Streep. Julianne Moore, and Nicole Kidman. It was directed by Stephen Daldry, written by David Hare. It was nominated for nine, and it won one Best Actress for Nicole Kidman. One, one two, three. three. The Hours! The Rings, the Two Towers. <laughs> All I want to say is I'm prepared to cede this to you. I just wanted to say I did enjoy The Hours more than I expected going into it, so I felt it deserved to be mentioned. But I know you care strongly for The Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to make I you defend it. did not care for the hours. So I guess we'll talk about that this episode. Indeed we will. Great. That brings us to our number four seed, The Pianist, a drama about a Jewish man surviving the Holocaust in Warsaw. It stars Adrian Brody. It was directed by Roman Polanski, written by Ronald Harwood. It's nominated for seven and it won three. Best Director, Roman Polanski. Best Actor, Adrian Brody and Best Adapted Screenplay. And our number seven seed is Chicago, an adaptation of the Broadway musical. It stars Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Richard Gere. It was directed by Rob Marshall and written by Bill Condon. Nominated for 13, it won six. Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. One. One. Two, three, three. Chicago. Chicago. Yay. Okay. I feel like the winner rarely goes through to the second round in our episodes, so I feel pretty good. It's true. It does very rarely happen, so congratulations to Chicago. <laughs> You've done it. Okay. Okay. Our final matchup is our number five seed, E2 Mama Tambien, a coming-of-age road movie. It stars Maribel Verdu, Gael Garcia Bernal, and Diego Luna. It was directed by Alfonso Cuaron, written by Alfonso Cuaron and Carlos Cuaron, and it was nominated for one, and it won zero. Right, that's up against our number six seed, Talk to Her, a drama about two men caring for women in comas. It stars Javier Mara, Dario Grandinetti, Leonor Watling, and Geraldine Chaplin. It's written and directed by Pedro Almodovar. It was nominated for two, and it won one. Best 
original screenplay. One, two, two three. Itu mama tambien. Okay, great. All right. Uh, you want to tell me what Gangs of New York is about? Sure. Gangs of New York is about various street gangs in New York in the 18... might start in the late 1850s, very early 1860s, and it goes into the Civil War time. So it is just about basically an Irish gang and then a native... not native, they call themselves natives, but like American anti-immigrant sort of gang. And so the child of the leader of one of them, his dad dies in an early battle and then he grows up to be Leonardo DiCaprio. He comes back to town. He sort of gets in with the leader of the other gang in an effort to undermine and pro- eventually probably kill him without telling him who he is, of course. And then it's sort of about him falling in love with this woman who lives there and whether or not he's going to run away with her and leave this behind or stay to avenge his father's death. There are politics things happening in the background with all sorts of immigrants coming in and being sent off to the Civil War. We've got Tammany Hall stuff happening. So there's, you know, people trying to get all of these immigrant votes as well. And it does eventually culminate in a battle between their gangs, but also riots on the street against the war and the like army stepping in and basically killing a bunch of people in in New York City while all of this is happening. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio does eventually get to kill Daniel Day Lewis. So good for him. That is good for him. <laughs> I tried to keep it short because it's a very long movie. It's very long and there's a lot of subplots. Um, So I think we've both seen this before. I saw this, uh, I don't know when I watched it. Maybe I was in high school actually. And I did not really remember it very well. Mm -hmm. And if I'm honest, I can feel it slipping from my brain as we speak. (laughs) Like if you ask me to tell you what happened in this movie in six months, I'm really not sure I would be able to. But I will say, happy surprise number one. Mm-hmm. coming into this movie great cast it's an amazing cast the movie starts and you see liam neeson and i was like liam neeson's in this movie Hell and then yeah. uh he's walking they're getting ready for their initial battle with daniel day lewis and his crew and then he's walking and then like john c Riley shows up because he's part Hell of yeah. the gang and i'm like john yep. c Riley's in this movie and then he continues to walk and then brendan gleason's there and i was like brendan gleason <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so they're all there there is all i was you know i'm like okay i'm liking this cast and then we get to the first battle, and I was like, they look like they are LARPing. And then I had to Google, does anyone LARP Gangs of New York? Ooh, that'd be fun. Couldn't find that. But I think you should. If you LARP, I think this is a great LARP to do. Hell yeah. That first battle scene did not care for the way it was shot. Okay. So had a hard time at the beginning of this movie taking things seriously. But yeah, it's like, you know, it's twisty-turny. I think there are a number of subplots that the movie doesn't need, particularly the Cameron Diaz love story subplot could have really done without. I would say the performances are uneven. The accent work is certainly uneven. Mm -hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis is doing his thing. It's sort of like a version of Daniel Plainview that he, you know, refines. It's like Daniel Plainview-esque. Yeah, I could see that. And 
you know, it's interesting. He's always interesting. You never see a DDL performance go, that was boring. Mm -mm. That's not really what happens. I think there is more weird race shit in this movie that is not handled well, which is a recurring problem that I have with Scorsese. Yeah. Where I think he is not interested in the plight of anyone except for white men. And he uses black people as a tool to tell that story. And he's trying to draw parallels throughout this movie, but they don't work. Because I think he is not concerned with the subject that he is drawing parallels with. And we can talk a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. And I think all the stuff with the Civil War is just, it's just not very thoughtfully integrated. And I'm not 100% sure what he's trying to say at the end of the film with mm-hmm. the paralleling of these battles and then the conscription riots. So I think it gets kind of messy. Yep. And it's real long. It is real long. What did you think? Revisiting Gangs of New York. I agree with most of that. I think the battles are fine. I don't have a problem with the battles. Like how they're shot, I mean. Mm -hmm. And I think Daniel Day-Lewis is obviously captivating as always. I definitely don't think that the romance should be there. And I do want to dive into my new theory about Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) that I had while watching this movie. Uh, I was struck by the idea, because people will know we both despise Titanic and the entire love story in that. And I thought, hey, I don't think I've ever cared about a Leonardo DiCaprio romance in any movie I've ever seen him in. So this might just be like a thing about Leonardo DiCaprio that doesn't work for me. We tried. We walked through his filmography and we were like, oh, yeah. No, it's possible we haven't seen just a movie where it really works. I have not seen all of Leo's films. No. But to our knowledge. Yeah. Not his strength as a performer. I think if you're hanging large parts of a movie on that, it's going to be a problem for me. So that became an issue. And then I totally agree with you i didn't remember that the conscription riot stuff happened at the end and was tied in with the final battle and i find whatever he's trying to say if anything about the civil war to be confused at best Mm -hmm. like the civil war is an interesting time to set something because obviously a lot of stuff's going on but he's not digging in into any of it any more than just to say like well, they're signing up immigrants off the boat to go fight in the war, and then people get to be like, well, we're fighting in a war for a country we aren't even from, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay. But (laughs) there's not any digging into the Civil War in any way more meaningful than that. Feels a little bit, because there is a a Black character who's hanging out with our Irish friends, that Mm -hmm. he's trying to draw some parallels between the treatment of these new Irish immigrants and, and Black people. And there's, like, something happening with the the Civil War component of that, too. But it's like, yeah, but the end of this story is Irish people got to be white people and also Mm -hmm. can be very racist towards black people. So I'm not really sure. Like, the parallel is wrong. It's not an accurate parallel. Certainly today, yeah. But I don't think he's, like, at the time, even, it's unclear to me how he's trying to use that. It just feels tangential. It doesn't feel intentional. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If it is intentional, I think it's misguided. And if it's tangential, I think it's sloppy. So either way, I'm not happy with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. It's um, not an effective part of the story. You know, this is a problem I had with Taxi Driver and it's a problem I had with Raging Bull. It's like a recurring problem with how he, and I mean like this very pointedly, how he uses mm-hmm. black people in his stories. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Any other? I'm looking at my notes? notes to see if there's anything that needs to be mentioned. One of my notes is less emotionally impactful gifting of a razor than Captain's Courageous. That's true. But I mean, has there ever been a more effective uh, emotional using of a giving of a razor? I cried so much at Captain's Courageous when he got that (laughs) razor. It's so good. Uh, I wrote, I always like how it looks when they have battles in snow. I wrote, it's funny to watch Daniel Day-Lewis throw a knife at a picture of Lincoln. (laughs) It really just falls under the category of Daniel Day-Lewis is good. I think that the speech that he gives him about his, how he always respected his dad and the relationship they ha- had is compelling. I think it's good work in that scene. But Daniel Day-Lewis is just always good. Gangs of New York. Okay. Cool. Okay. Up next is a different movie. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I believe. Is, our, is that mm-hmm, our next one? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So My Big Fat Greek Wedding takes place in modern day Chicago. And we are following a Greek woman who grows up in a large greek family and she's been told her whole life that her only purpose is to marry a greek man and have a lot of greek babies but she's 30 years old and unmarried and kind of frumpy and working in her family's restaurant her family owns a number of businesses and you know she's just she's just kind of sad and lonely and, and not having the best time so one day at her family's restaurant she sees this very handsome man and you know is kind of overwhelmed by that and then later she decides that she wants to sort of get out and make a separate life for herself so she convinces her dad to let her take some computer courses and then she and her mom convince the dad to let her work in her aunt's travel agency instead of at the restaurant and she's gotten a little bit more independent and then she sees this handsome man again and he approaches her and they start dating and then they fall in love and then they're going to get married. Oh, but it's a problem because he's not Greek. Oh, no. So then the rest of the movie is her getting her family to come around and let her marry this non-Greek man. And, you know, the wackiness of her large Greek family compared to his very small waspy family. And will her dad ever accept her beau? Yeah, everyone gets together. They get married. It's nice. Mm-hmm. It made very nice. so much money off of such a small budget. Yeah, they spent $5 million on this movie and went on to earn, probably at adjusted dollars, more than $400 million. And it was in theaters like forever. It It is. Legs for days. By far the highest grossing rom-com of all time. It was a moment. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it deserved it. It's super charming. It's a very good movie. (laughs) I think it is a delightful time. The casting is extraordinary. Everyone in this movie is just so perfect. I love her whole family. Shout out Joey Fatone, who is one of her cousins. I really forgot he was in this movie. I was like, Joey Fatone? <laughs> but yeah, she and John Corbett are adorable and have great chemistry. I think it is very, it's like a just a pleasant time. There's not any tension in the romance narrative in a way a rom-com would normally do it of a like will they end up together oh no they've had a miscommunication and a fight the what will bring them back together like that stuff totally doesn't exist the entire premise of the movie is about how can we make this blended family situation work which i think is the heart of it because it's highly relatable and just it's great it's about like how our differences bring us together. It's lovely. And it is 
the prototypical version of a Hollywood truism that is said all the time that specificity is universal, right? What makes this work is the family feels so specific in a way where you're like, oh, I get that. That's like my family. <laughs> yeah, it's super cute. I don't think I rewatched this movie at all recently. So yes, there were surprises along the way. Joey Fatone being a big one. Mm-hmm. The computer stuff is delightfully dated. I enjoyed that very much. And man, you used to just be able to like wander into a school. That, that part was wild. Truly. You could just walk right in. She, he's a teacher and she just shows up at the door of his classroom and you're like, damn, <laughs> strangers just walking around in yeah. the school building. He takes a break <laughs> to go out and talk to her and you're just like, oh, you couldn't do that anymore. I fully forgot how how waspy his parents were. All of the scenes it's with hysterical. his parents are so funny. Yes. They are wearing just the most neutral sweater sets and, yep. you know, slacks it's and button downs. A J. Crew catalog over there. Yeah. And they just like go to their house and sit in silence with yeah. each other. <laughs> very, very And funny. then their parents showing up at her family and how all of that works out and like just the sheer shock of it. Yeah. But they come around at the wedding. Everyone has a great time and they all really like each other. They do. And I thought the joke about how they miss, uh, miss put his mom's name on the invitation. Very funny. My mom's <laughs> yes. name is Harriet. Harriet. Yeah, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> but then at the wedding, her husband calls her Harry. Yeah, it's cute. I loved our lead's relationship with her little brother. There are some really yes. sweet moments between her and her younger brother. The mom mm-hmm. is great. If I had any complaints, mm-hmm. it would be that I do wish John Corbett's character was slightly more of a person. He has very limited personality. He basically yeah. just loves her and wants to marry her and is nice. His personality is he's lovely. <laughs> yeah, he's nice. <laughs> he really loves her. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they try to give him a best friend character. Ian Gomez is his best friend Mm -hmm. and they have like two scenes together and they just are like, he's there to be like, oh, he has a friend. (laughs) They don't even really talk about anything. They're just like, we're best friends. Yeah, I'm inviting you to be my best man. No, he's, he can't be his best man. It has to be like one of her relatives, right? Is that what happened? Right. He's like, he says, I would have had you be yeah. my best man. And, and then his I friend is like, have. wow, you have like no other friends, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, he's very boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not wrong, but I also don't care at all when I'm watching it that he doesn't have more of a personality. Because you're just like, it's nice that he's so nice and he really wants to make this work. And anytime she is any con- is concerned... That she's like, I don't think we're going to be able to make this work. It's making my family too unhappy. He's like, we're going to make it work. It's going to be fine. Well, to your point of there not being like a normal rom-com second act low point where he is all of a mm-hmm. sudden like, I don't think this is going to work. And then they have right. to come back together. Yeah, his even keeled sweetness just kind of like glosses right over that. Like, we're not doing right that. Because they have a half a moment where she comes and is like, I think we're not going to be able to get married. My family's upset. And he's like, that's crazy. I'll make them love me. And, and then he does. That's when she comes to the school. Yeah. She's like, let's elope. And he's like, nah, I got to go back to teaching. You continue to wander around this high school randomly. <laughs> Lots of iconic lines from this with the bunt cake and the ant being like, what do you mean? He don't eat no meat. Yeah, it's a bunt. I make you lamb. It's okay. I make lamb. Lots of classic lines. A Windex. 
the father with the Windex, put Windex on everything. And then at the end, John Corbett says he woke up on the wedding day with a with a zit and it's no longer there. And she's like, oh, what? How'd you get rid of it? And he's like, I put some Windex on it. Mm-hmm. Good callbacks. Good joke structure. Yeah. And I do agree. I didn't remember how adorable her relationship with the brother was. They were yeah. very sweet. There were multiple heartwarming moments. She inspires him to follow his heart and like start his art career, which he never would have done without her. There's a part at the when uh, John Corbett is getting baptized so that he could join their church and they can get married there. That's, and the, she, that's the sweetest part. That's the sweetest part because she's like, I, any moment he's going to look up and realize I'm not worth it. And the brother's like, yes, you are. Uh, oh, uh. <laughs> nice. It's just great. Like, if you are need a movie to make you feel happy and have a good time, which we honestly all need, this is that movie. Because <laughs> it's hard out there, man. It's a bummer of a time to be alive. It always is. It always is. But, I yeah, it's very interesting to me that this was such a sensation. Blew people's minds, but in a totally charming and adorable way. Yeah. And then we never saw Joey Fatone in a movie again. Sure we did. Nah, maybe we did. I don't remember. Was the Lance Bass on the line before or after this? Because he's in that, too. (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know what that is. You don't know the Lance Bass rom-com on the line? No. Wow. Okay. That's a different discussion for a different day. All right. That brings us to our next film, The Hours. Okay, so The Hours is told in three timelines. One of the timelines follows Virginia Woolf as she is writing Mrs. Dalloway. One of the timelines follows a 50s housewife and her young son. And another of the timelines follows a 2001, so just like present day timeline with a woman who is planning a party for her friend who is a poet who's winning an award and we eventually find out that that poet is the son from the 50s housewife storyline spoiler <laughs> there are always spoilers <laughs> well just early in your summary well it's a reveal i don't really want to do the whole movie in reveals i was gonna get broad strokes <laughs> okay. but yes it does play as a reveal later on but it's just sort of telling the premise of mrs dalloway is that it's a woman planning a party and Her whole life in one day is how Virginia Woolf describes it. And so that's sort of what we're getting with these other women, too. We get one day of their lives and they are both planning a party on the day and they are all depressed. And the movie starts with Virginia Woolf committing suicide, which happens 16 years after she writes Mrs. Dalloway. And then suicide intersects with each of the other storylines as well. And so the mother from the 50s plot considers killing herself, but ends up not doing it. And instead, she leaves her family and goes to uh, California, Canada, (laughs) to work at a library. Just like California. They're the same. And in the present day storyline, the poet who has AIDS and has been depressed ends up killing himself and doesn't get to go to the party and the woman who's been planning the party it's a real problem the woman who's been planning the party then invites his mother and the two of them have a sort of heart to heart because they've never met each other about their lives and why things went the way they went why she abandoned her child abandoned my boy abandoned my boy I didn't think of that. I did think of Kramer versus Kramer, but yes, it is also. <laughs> I've abandoned my boy. See? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's sort of just about like women and depression and all that in three timelines. Yeah. What did you think of it? First, a question. Yes. Have you read Mrs. Dalloway? No. 
I have not either. I really haven't read like any Virginia Woolf. I read half of Orlando when I was 13. And <laughs> <Okay>. then <laughs> I had to return it to the library and I never checked it back. Yeah. Uh, and that is the extent of my Virginia Woolf reading. I don't know if you've read more of her. No. So I think it's worth saying. I think there there's like a lot of synergies or whatever with mm-hmm. the book. I certainly which... read a lot about Mrs. Dalloway yes. because of this movie. So there may be like nuances that if I'd read Mrs. Dalloway, I would have really appreciated like, oh, look at this parallel. That's so elegant and mm-hmm. fantastic. But I, yeah. I could not. So just some background. The movie does feel very based on a book and literary. There's details with characters where I'm like, this just feels like a book. I'm not sure why this detail is here, but okay. And then I think my overarching feeling about it is this movie is just tonally so dour. Yeah. It's it's like, yeah, being a woman is tough, but like there's joy too. I was thinking about, because we're going to talk about Spielberg this year. I've been thinking about Spielberg a lot and a lot in relation to a number of these movies. But like, you know, you get something like The Color Purple. Those women have really tough lives, Mm -hmm. but they also still have moments of joy. Mm -hmm. And so watching this, I don't know if I could connect to any of the characters. They're just so in it and there's no context for what's going on around them or what's led them to this point in their lives. It just felt sort of airless to me. And then obviously, you know, the movie's well lauded for its performances I feel like you could really see them acting, especially depending on the scenes. You're like, oh, I'm acting. Can't you tell that I'm depressed? And it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I can. I will say I did really like a number of the supporting roles and characters. I thought Toni Collette was excellent. She has a small scene. Always excited to see Allison Janney, although she's not Mm -hmm. really heavily utilized. Mm -hmm. We didn't mention John C. Riley's in three of our nominees here, (laughs) two of them playing a kind of similar character. Yes. And he's so sweet and just so unaware and he's a real john corbett you know (laughs) yeah he's a real john corbett (laughs) but like yeah i found the the lead performances largely very effortful and kind of overwrought so i don't know it's just it's very melodramatic i had a hard time getting into it and connecting to it and it was just dour 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 it was definitely dour i think i liked the performances more than you though they are certainly affected the cast is great and I didn't know anything about Mrs. Dalloway. So then as this was starting and I'm realizing what it is, I'm like pausing the movie to do a bunch of Mrs. Dalloway research. Mm-hmm. And I just I think I ended up really liking the structure. I thought it was interesting. I thought the parallels as described to the book sounded cool. And it could have had a little more light, but maybe I was in a better place that day than when I was watching some other Dower movies that we have watched. So I just wasn't as turned off by it as I might have otherwise been. I liked their performances. I liked the structure. I really liked some of the scenes. I liked the scene with Virginia Woolf and her husband when she convinces him they have to move back to London. That's one of the scenes where you're really like, I'm acting, I'm angry now, and I'm yelling. And you're like, okay. (laughs) She was angry. I I see you acting through your nose, Nicole. Uh, We should talk about the nose. The nose is completely unnecessary. (laughs) The nose is insane. It looks bad. I don't know why they did the nose. I was saying to you, oh, of course, you know, if they didn't give her the nose, everyone would go to this movie and say she doesn't look like Virginia right. Woolf because we all know exactly what Virginia Everybody Woolf looks knows. like. Yeah. And then also, she also still doesn't look anything like Virginia Woolf. You actually look at Virginia Woolf. So you're like, uh-huh. why did you do this? I don't know. I couldn't tell you the answer to that. The nose is crazy. We don't need the nose. 
And I also told you I read that they couldn't even get nominated for Best Makeup because they had to digitally retouch it so much. So what was the point? There was no point to the nose. It does stick in the mind. That is what people know from this movie. If it's had any cultural impact, it's that nose. That's true. That's absolutely true. Maybe that's why they did the nose. People are going to be talking about this nose for years. But anyway, yeah. I mean, I didn't think it was a perfect movie, but I did enjoy the construction of it. And maybe I should read some Virginia Woolf. I don't know. I haven't read any. Yeah, I've been meaning to. I I remember liking the first half of Orlando. So maybe I should revisit that. It was interesting. Yeah. I just, it was really overdue at the library. And then, you know, just never got back to it. Yeah. Now that you're an adult, it probably will have additional layers of meaning than it would have if you sure. were 13. So. Did you notice in that scene when Jeff Daniels comes to visit Meryl Street while she's making food for the party? And she's separating yolks from the whites with her hands. And then she starts having a breakdown and she never fucking washes her hands. She did wash her hands. No, she turns on the sink too high. And then she doesn't really rinse them off because it's like too much water. And then she sort of touches a towel. And then she's walking around the room, touching her hair, touching the countertops and touching her (laughs) face with eggy hands. And I was freaking out. I was like, this is a salmonella nightmare. Where is Louis Pasteur when you need him? (laughs) I don't know. All I remembered was her turning on the sink. So apparently that was enough for my stupid brain to be like, yeah, she washed your hands. I rewound it multiple times. I was like, she did not wash her hands. Her hands were covered in eggs. This is a sign that you are not invested in the performances. <laughs> and also, she's making a huge dinner for a party wearing three inch boots in her yeah, house. I thought that was and fascinating. Was like, That's why. This woman is committed to the boots. Honestly. Great cast. Lots of people. Very good cast. And again, like, I thought Tony Collette's small... She was fantastic. That, that scene I did really like. The scene with yeah, Tony Collette where she comes to ask Julianne Moore to feed her dog. I did really like that scene. And I'm always happy to see Allison Janney, but she didn't have a lot to do. No. She's very underappreciated in the film and outside of the film. But yeah, John C. Riley just trying to be a supportive husband, and it's really not working out for him in any of these movies. Oh, he's having a bad time. I mean, the Gangs of New York role is different, but he also has a bad time in that movie. Yeah. But everyone has a bad time in that movie. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Except for maybe Jim Broadbent. He's doing fine. Uh Uh-huh. But that's the hours. Do you have more thoughts? No, I'm glad to to talk about the eggy hand scene because I was was really like... I was really bothering you. I was having a fit. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, that brings us to our next nominee, The Pianist, which I think I'm summing up. Yep. So The Pianist takes place in Warsaw, Poland, around the start of World War II, or the German invasion of Poland is probably more appropriate to say. Mm -hmm. And we are following a Jewish family, and in particular, a Jewish pianist. Mm, Hence the title. Yeah, named Vladek Spilsman. And as you might expect, things get worse and worse and worse for this family. So, you know, we see initially them being put into the Jewish ghetto in Warsaw and their rights being constricted. And then they have to, you know, wear the Star of David and be labeled. Then they're trying to get work permits because work is difficult to come by. They're running out of money. Eventually, 
Vladik's whole family gets taken away to a concentration camp and he gets pulled out of the, the line as that's happening. And so he remains in the city. He initially continues to live in the ghetto and try to find work and help an uprising that's going on. But, you know, that doesn't really work out. And he's able to run away and find shelter with some Gentile families that he knew before from the art scene. And they help hide him for a while. But then things, you know, get worse and worse for the remaining Polish people who are in Poland. And eventually he is just hiding and scrounging around trying to survive in the blown out remains of Warsaw. And he makes it through the war and is rescued by some Soviet soldiers at the end. I guess it's worth saying towards the end of his time in Warsaw, he does meet a Nazi soldier who ends up helping him out a little bit right before the end. But yeah, he survives. This is based on a true story. Vladik Spilsman was a real person. And yeah, that's pretty much it. What did you think of The Pianist? A little bit of a bummer, huh? Yeah, it's pretty bleak. Yeah, it is pretty unrelentingly bleak throughout I would say it's well shot. Adrian Brody is good. The family is good. The acting is good. I just the whole time through was left with like, why am I watching this? And why did you make this movie? I guess were my main questions of the whole thing. We've all seen a lot of Holocaust stuff, I assume. I Maybe not set in Poland. That's like a new angle. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the same horrible stuff everywhere. And it's awful. It makes you feel bad. And there aren't any real, like, emotional layers to it. It just is, like, how horrible can we watch people be to each other? Oh, very, very horrible. Yep. That's what I'm getting out of it. <laughs> and then the, the, like, thing with the Nazi at the end who helps him, I don't really... I think that's just a problem of it being a real thing that happened. But narratively, yes. you're like, why did that happen? <laughs> what am I supposed right. to take away from that? Yes, it's what is it trying to say? And it's like, I don't know. But this is what happened to this guy. So he did meet this Nazi who did not just help him. He he became disillusioned with Nazism. And you don't get that from the movie, though. No. So he helped a lot of people, a lot of Poles, a lot of Jewish people, not just Vladek, but we don't know that. It just seems like this random Nazi showed up and was like, wow, you play the piano? Guess I won't kill you. Here's some jam and bread. And a coat. And a coat. So yeah, I think that's more of a biopic problem than sort of anything else. I mean, obviously it's horrible. It's yep. horrible to watch a state treat people like this and a, you know, a more powerful military treat a group of civilians. Uh-huh. This way. It's not fun. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, it it's just bleak. Again, I'm thinking of Spielberg. I'm thinking of Schindler's. Yeah. And you know, I always think about what Spielberg said around deciding how much violence to show and sort of what to show and what you need to show in order to indicate to an audience that things are horrible without fetishizing the trauma. And so I think I always have that question when I watch something like this and, you know, where that line is drawn. And, you know, Spielberg drew it one place and Polanski is drawn in another place, but I think it's always worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, for a movie that we're following this one character very closely, it is a biopic. We're following him and... I I just didn't find him to have much of a personality. And I'm not sure if that's purposeful. Like, he has a thing. His thing is that he plays the piano. (laughs) Yeah. But that's not really, like, a personality. No. So I I found that strange. Like, I I had a hard time, again, like, connecting to this individual person. Because I 
I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. Which, again, can be the point. Like, we'll talk about Dunkirk one day. And those yes. those kids are sort of like amorphous, just people. And I think that's purposeful and it works for Dunkirk. I, again, I think it's like the mixing of this story with a biopic that is like, it's a little strange. Well, because if you're leaning into a biopic, it really needs to be about like, I care about this one person's story. So I want to know all the things that happened to this person. And then you can sort of get away with it not all necessarily having narrative thrust. It's like just stuff that happened to them. And you're like, oh, wow, this stuff happened to them. But if you Mm -hmm. don't really care about the person, then you're like, what are we saying? What's the point of the whole thing? And speaking about him being a pianist, I don't really understand what Polanski is trying to do with the music elements of the movie. The piano stuff comes in and out and obviously means a lot to this main character because he thinks of this as a big part of his identity and then he is separated from being able to play the piano for long stretches of it. And then whenever he does hear someone playing it or find a piano, clearly he's, oh, the piano, like he's having a moment about it. But when we hear piano and when he plays piano and when he thinks about piano, it never really comes together to me to be the same theme or point or something. It's just like a thing that's happening. And so then it becomes a big part of this plot because when the Nazi at the end finds him, he has him, he tells him he plays piano and the Nazi's like, great, play piano. And he plays it. And it's the first time he's played since the Holocaust began. And it's really meaningful to him, clearly. It seems like it must be meaningful to the Nazi, but not in a way where you're like, I get what's happening here. <laughs> like, it's all coming this together. This has become a transcendent moment of art connecting people, art helping him survive, art lifting him up. Art carrying him through this experience, like art being something to live for, even in the bleakest times. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Those are all questions. Which one of the, all of, all of those? None of those. Not sure. Yeah. So yeah, tough watch. But if someone said to me, recommend a Holocaust drama to me, this would not be a top choice. No, I mean, there's so many to choose from that it feels like at this point, you need to be saying something new, doing something new with your movie. It did lead me to read the Wikipedia page on the Robinson Crusoes of Warsaw, which was very interesting because there were a lot of people that hid out in Warsaw after it it got destroyed. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that Spilsman is one of the most famous of these Crusoes of Warsaw, but he also had a very unusual story because they like largely lived in groups, like small groups of people. So I wouldn't be disinterested from seeing another story about the Crusoes of Warsaw, particularly like in these groups. There was one story where a group of people like, They managed to build themselves a well together. They were like, it was like a group of 37 people and they were with these doctors. Wow. So it sounds like people were like doing a lot, but he doesn't even really run into anyone else. No, I mean, once people have abandoned Warsaw, the only person that he runs into is the Nazi. And the only people he even sees from afar seem to be Nazis. But there were other people hiding out in the area, which is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there are parts of this that butt up against stuff that would be interesting to dive into. I told you earlier, the beginning stuff I always find really interesting, that transitional period from normal society to fascism. And like, yes. how do we get from one thing to another? Stuff that we found really interesting about missing, right? The mm-hmm. That they're just sort of living a normal life. And then all of a sudden you're seeing people murdered in the street right around you. And it's like, how does this happen? (laughs) We all feel like when you live in a democracy or whatever, you could never get there. And it can happen really quickly, (laughs) all of a sudden. And so that stuff I find very interesting, particularly because it feels like it speaks 
to the moment because we're never that far from fascism. But that's not, it doesn't become what it's about. No, and it also the classic sort of war movie thing where we talked about where every single thing that happens, everyone's like, just be a couple of weeks. Oh, England's declared war on Germany. It'll be over in a couple of weeks. It feels oh, like America's entered the fray. It'll be over always in a couple of weeks. Think that about war. Why do people always think that about war? It'll be over in a couple of weeks. I can't think of a war I've studied where there weren't people who were like, don't worry. It'll be over in a couple of weeks. <laughs> it so rarely is. Ay, so yeah, yeah. Very rarely. You know, it's not without interesting parts. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like a hard thing to critique, but like. Well, yeah, because it's like, it's effective at making you feel bad. That's not, I guess, that hard to do. I cried at several parts because, <laughs> like, of course, I did. But I then you're like, w- what is the bigger picture of this? What is the broader point? I don't what know. What is the perspective? What is yes. the perspective you're bringing to this situation? Or are you just telling this one guy's story? And, you know, then you can talk about it as a biopic. But it has all of the biopic problems of, like, it's very episodic. And you're like, what does this Nazi mean at the end? Like, what are you saying yeah. about this Nazi at the end? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. To just have one nice Nazi feels like you're trying to say something. (laughs) But they don't give you any more information about him. Like to learn that this real guy was, you know, his own Oscar Schindler, basically, who was like trying to help lots of people is very interesting. But in this man's life, he literally met a Nazi who didn't kill him and gave him some bread and a coat and then was like, all right, bye. And then they never saw each other again. And that was his entire experience of him. Yeah. What's the point? It's maybe saying something about, like, luck and providence, but... Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. We will talk about more Holocaust dramas, no doubt, over the course of this podcast. Yeah. Obviously Schindler's. But, hey, we should loop back around to Au Revoir Les Enfants, because I haven't seen that since we were in high school, and I would be curious to revisit. Yes. I remember it being good. We got to figure out what year that came out. But, yeah, not sure what the unique perspective is here. I mean, there should be a unique perspective, because we haven't even said... Roman Polanski grew up in Poland during the Holocaust. <laughs> like yes, he's he's a survivor of this. Yes, uh, not Warsaw, but Krakow, and like very similar situation. His family was taken away. They were killed in concentration camps. If anyone could have a unique perspective on this, feels like it could yeah. be Polanski, but um, I don't really know if it comes through. Uh, and I also think, given everything else about Polanski, we could just nominate him for fewer Oscars generally. Yeah, that's that's true too. Him winning Best Director in two thousand two is like, ugly. bit of a yikes. Okay, well, um, that's the pianist. <laughs> All right, let's talk about talk to her. I'm talk go to far. her. This is a wild movie. This is two interwoven storylines about these two guys and their shall we call them relationships with two different women. So. We have a guy who is a nurse and caretaker for a woman in a coma. For most of the storyline, we see him as a caretaker for this woman in the coma. He like talks about her as if she is his girlfriend. And so all throughout, you're trying to figure out how long have they known each other? What's their backstory? What's going on here? Who knows? And then we have another guy who is a writer who we get the backstory relationship of his relationship which i've just said twice now with a woman who is a bullfighter fascinating matador (laughs) she's a matador and so they you know meet and fall in love and have a relationship and she ends up getting in an accident that puts her well in an accident she's gored by a bull in one of her fights 
Yeah, she was there on purpose, so. The bull won. Sorry. It's going to happen sometimes. She ends up in a coma in the same hospital where this other storyline is taking place. And so then we get this friendship developing between these two men, one of whom is like new to this experience and one of whom is an old hand and is trying to be like, I'll be your guide through caring for your coma girlfriend, basically. And they become friends because they're both very lonely. And you learn more about each of them. And then some fucked up stuff happens <laughs> where the nurse one impregnates the woman in a coma and ends up losing his job and going to jail. Meanwhile, the other guy has, if you can call it, broken up with his girlfriend while she's in a coma because he finds out that she had been trying to leave him right before the coma and get back together with her ex. So he exits the situation. And then he has to deal with the nurse friend's prison situation. And (laughs) eventually that friend realizes that he's not going to get out of prison and he kills himself. And our other guy inherits his apartment, which is across the street from where his, not his girlfriend, but the other woman has now gotten out of her coma. And her dance studio is across the street. And so he meets her. And the implication is maybe the two of them will get together post-movie. Kind of wild. (laughs) That's Doctor. Yeah, wild is one word for it. It's kind of gross. I mean, lots of parts of it are gross, yes. Yeah, I did not care for this one. I mean, the filmmaking is interesting. I think it's more grounded, was what I was reading, than a lot of Almodovar's other Mm -hmm. works. I don't know if you've seen any of his other stuff I've not as I mentioned maybe one but I can't remember it's been a bit okay and you know I didn't like have any issues with the performances I was fearing that the twist was going to happen the whole movie because like I mean all I could think about honestly was like Kill Bill yes because it's you know the same thing yeah but I was reading some contemporary reviews and I have a pull a quote from a Peter Bradshaw review that was in The Guardian in 2002. And he says, the action of talk to her could be horrific or at the very least nauseating, yet such is the imaginative warmth of Almodovar conveys for his two male leads, combined with his stylization and modification of the real world in which the rape happens, revulsion is neutralized through a combination of sympathy and alienation. Almodovar so expertly manages his movie's perspective that the rape looks like a subsidiary event in an essentially heartwarming tragicomic fable of relationships, It leaves unanswered the question of how exactly we're supposed to think and feel about this rape or if it is a rape at all. And this is sort of indicative of a number of reviews that I read. Mm. And I do not feel this way. The rape is repulsive. Full stop. I don't see it as a moral gray area. I don't see it as challenging. I don't see it as, is it a rape at all? She's in a coma. Yes, she can't consent. She's impregnated. This has altered her life fully. And, you know, I think if this movie was pitched as like a horror movie, I could get into it because it is a horror movie, but it's not. I think we are supposed to feel sympathy for Benigno at the end, the way the movie frames him, and I cannot. I have a mm-hmm. real problem with that. And so the fact that that was the response is also troubling to me, frankly, uh, which is a little external to the film. And then, yeah, it's. I think it's interesting that this movie is called Talk to Her, when it's really about men talking at women. It should be yes. called Talk at Her. There's a, There is an interesting part towards the end where... When we see the scene where the woman who gets gored by the bull is trying to break up with him before yes. she gets gored by the bull, she says, I need to talk to you after 
my bullfight. And he's like, we've been talking for an hour. And she's like, no, you've been talking at me for an hour. We need to talk after the bullfight. And you're like, that seems like actually the thesis of this film. I think it is. (laughs) But then how do you interpret the ending? Which part of the ending? Him meeting the other, the woman? Yes. And what the implication of that scene is. I don't know. That part is interesting. I mean, I, okay, I guess I should step back. I agree with you. The rape in this movie is repulsive. (laughs) I think that it was my experience of it. And I did find that I think the not, what's the name of the character that's not Benigno? Marco? Marco seems right. Let me look up my... It is Marco. Okay. So I think when Marco first figures this out about Benigno, like he is like, oh, like that's fucked up. No, no. (laughs) Like you can't be doing that. That is, she can't consent. I think our words he actually says to him. And so then I do think he is intentional with showing that both of these men are experiencing their relationships with women where the women are not actual people. They are people that they talk at, right? And he does put a button on that with the conversation with the woman who's trying to break up with him earlier. I do think the connection that the two of them have, I mean, I think Benigno has a lot going on emotionally. He's really fucked up and doesn't seem to understand at all what's going on (laughs) with him. Um, But I think it's interesting that Marco still feels much as he is horrified by Benigno's actions, like a responsibility for him. And there is that nurse that calls and is like, I can't see Benigno again because what he did was so fucked up, but you should go make sure he's okay because he's your friend. (laughs) And you're like, this is a really interesting take. And I think there's something about like their loneliness and how Marco feels that in a time when he really needed someone to connect with, that was Benigno for him. So there's like this interesting thing to it where I don't feel like Marco thinks it's okay, but he also feels a connection to Benigno that he can't walk away from. I am unsure what I'm supposed to think about the ending when he goes and meets the girl and then it's like they're gonna be together I don't really know how I'm supposed to feel about that but I thought there was enough interesting about it that it kept me thinking the whole way through like what's going on here I am intrigued uh and I didn't think it was like just gross even though the obviously the action is disgusting but I was interested I was interested by it and what was going on with their story and the the loneliness themes and like not being able to connect with people And then the idea of it being called talk to her. And even Benigno is like, you've just got to talk to her. (laughs) Like he thinks he's really having this relationship with this woman that he's like had one conversation with in his life. It's crazy. But I don't know. I found it interesting. Fucked up, but interesting. Yeah, I think if the rape had been more of a surprise to me, Mm -hmm. it might have been more interesting. And yeah, I am partially reacting to what I read as the reactions to it. Yeah. Which is a bigger problem. But yeah, I mean, Marco at the end saying to Benigno about the girl, you woke her up. I was just like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Hard no. Hard no (laughs) on this ending. (laughs) I think that's fair. I did like the shrinking lover bit. I thought that was fun. Mm -hmm. There are the interesting, like running weird arty bits to this. The movie starts with this crazy play that the two of them are seeing with these women that are like I did have to look that up I'm like is this a real thing it is (laughs) it's a real play these women whose eyes are closed and they run across the stage and then there's a man like dragging things out of their way so they don't run into them it's like just the most art house theater thing where there's a bunch of chairs on the stage so he's moving the chairs out of the way as they roll around it's very dance 
It's very dense. But it, yeah, there's this thing where Marco's character cries at everything. And you're like, what's going on with him crying in all of these scenes? And then you find out that he had this girlfriend that he had to break up with, even though both of them were still in love with each other for whatever reason. And so now every time he sees something he wishes he could have shared with her, he cries. <laughs> and you're like, this is a fascinating experience. I just thought there were enough moments that I was like, that's really interesting. I didn't think it came together perfectly, but I was intrigued by lots of parts of it. It's quite a movie. Just again, if you watch this movie and you're like, hmm, was this rape a real rape? This is challenging. Oh, did they love her? Yeah, I don't. I have a problem with that as a takeaway. <laughs> That's bad. You're bad. To, Stop to doing me, that. the takeaway is rape. like, Benigno should be receiving some sort of uh, intense psychotherapy for the issues that he is going through and should not be caring for people. He can't be a nurse anymore. That's absolutely not not allowed. No, no, no. And I felt like most of the people in the movie thought it was pretty fucked up. So it's interesting that the people watching it were like, who knows? Well, that's doctor. Do you have any other thoughts? Uh, I don't think so. I, well, I liked how it was shot, and I thought there were some interesting, like, bits. The use of color <laughs> is very interesting, too, which I I read is pretty common of Almodovar. He's, yeah. he's bold colors, red and blue. Okay, that's talk to her. All right. Should we talk about our best of the best and worst of the, or best of the worst and worst of the worst? Yeah, let's get to our mini conclusions for the end of part one of the show. Part one. I think my best of the worst is my big fat Greek wedding. 100% agree. It's a delight. It's fucking it's, great. It's the only one it. on this list that is a delight. Uh, yeah, they're mostly not delights. No. <laughs> it's a lot of bummers. And then one like, uh, how should I feel about this? Who knows? You can watch the, my big fat Greek wedding anytime. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I feel like it had a really strong matchup. I was torn about that one because mm-hmm. I think my big fat Greek wedding deserves an Oscar nomination this year. It is... It's a phenomenon. A movie of the year. Yeah. An absolute phenomenon. Okay. Worst of the worst. Hmm. Hmm. This is tough. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it's just Gangs of New York. I think it's too uneven. I think parts of it are very successful and parts of it are very unsuccessful. Yeah. I mean, I think I disliked a number of these films more than you. Yeah. Which is honestly very common. <laughs> Very common, yeah. I feel like the fact that I saw Gangs of New York before and could have told you nothing about it is just, Mm -hmm. it's just really bad. Like, I think I'll remember The Pianist. I feel like I'm going to remember the hours. I told, I Mm -hmm. said at the beginning, like, Gangs of New York, I feel is already slipping from my brain again. Something about it's real slippery to me. So I think I go Gangs of New York as well. Okay. What are we talking about next time? More of this. We're talking about the 75th Academy Awards continued. We'll talk about our winners, Spirited Away, Catch Me If You Can, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Chicago, and Itumama Tambien. Hell yeah. Look forward to that. It's going to be a good time. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, and concerns, you can reach out to us at oscarswrongpod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at oscarswrongpod, and our website is oscarswrongpod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 